Joining us today on the Dialogos Radio and the Dialogos Interview Series is the economist and professor Hajun Chang of the University of Cambridge. He's a regular contributor to The Guardian, and he's also the author of a recent book titled 23 Things They Don't Tell You About Capitalism. Hajun, welcome to our program today. Thank you for inviting me. In your book, you debunk many of the myths about capitalism that we often hear in the media and in conventional teachings of economics, myths that are often seen as conventional wisdom. What are some of the biggest myths that you have identified? Well, at least uh, 23 of them, as I wrote in the book. I mean, there are more. But yeah, I think there are a few very important ones that have played quite a big role in shaping our economy and society in the way that has uh, evolved in the last two, three decades. And the first uh, myth is that, you know, free markets are natural things like, I don't know, the mountain or the river, and we shouldn't interfere with it. I mean, that's the biggest myth. And uh, I I tried to debunk it in the very first chapter of my 23 Things book. Also, that is this uh, persistent myth that starting from Britain in the 18th century and the United States in the 19th century, all successful countries have developed because they use free trade and free market policies, which is completely untrue if you actually look at historical record. For example, in the 18th century, Britain was the most protectionist economy in the world. In the 19th century, the United States was the most protected economy in the world. And this government industrial policy that countries like Germany, Japan, France, and so on have used quite well known. So that's another important myth that probably the third one, I would say, is this myth that inequality is good for growth. You know, making rich people richer makes all of us richer. Okay, you might have smaller slice of the pie, but if you give more money to the rich people, they invest and create wealth and jobs, and in the end, uh, you your pie will be bigger than what you had in absolute terms, even if it's smaller slice of the entire pie. And then there are many more, but I think it, these three were probably the most important in creating this notion in the last two, three decades that the best thing you can do for the economy is to increase inequality, have free trade, privatize everything, and then everything will be fine. Another myth that you've identified in a recent piece that you wrote is the myth of the so-called lazy mob. And we've heard many media outlets refer to the Southern European populations in particular as being lazy and unproductive, that they don't work hard. How do you respond to these accusations? Mm. Well, first of all, about this uh, notion of being lazy, I mean, it's uh, based on even racist kind of stereotypes. The stereotype is that people who live in cold countries work harder and people who live in warm countries like Greece and Italy don't work very hard. But if you actually look at the real statistics, uh, you will find that on average, the Greek worker works for 2,040 hours. This was uh, from 2011. And this is 40% more than the Germans and 50% more than the Dutch. So who's the lazy one? Italians work over 1,700 hours per year and that's uh, 25% more than the Germans. So based on this uh, completely mistaken idea that they are lazy, you know, that is not why countries like Greece and Italy have problems. The problem in those countries is that, yes, I mean, they have a lower productivity than Germany or the Netherlands, so their workers are produced uh, less income, even though the number of hours they work might be much longer. And this uh, problem of uh, low productivity is uh, not really the fault of the workers, you know, it's the fault of their capitalists and the government, because unless your capitalists and your government invest in productive machines, invest in research and development, to develop new technologies, investing infrastructure like road and ports and so on, national productivity is not going to rise. So if it's 
anyone's fault. It's the fault of the Greek capitalists and the Greek government, not Greek workers. Yeah? So I think uh, this story of lazy Greeks and Italians is uh, just an excuse invented by people who don't want to do anything fundamental about the problems with those countries within the context of uh, European Monetary Union. And I think that uh, it's very unfortunate that this kind of groundless story circulates and is uh, so widely accepted that uh, we, we have to really rectify this kind of misconception. Recently, we've been hearing proclamations by Greek politicians and also from European Union officials regarding Greece's economic success story, and in particular about the country's primary budget surplus. Is this success story and this surplus also a myth in your opinion? <laughs> well, you know, yes, what you count as success depends on your goal. So if you're Hitler, how many Jews you've killed, the more Jews you killed is greater success. So my view about this interpretation is that these people are looking at the wrong goal. You know, why are we interested in creating wealth and generating income and so on? Because we really want people to be happy, people to have good jobs and have a fulfilling life and yeah, have a comfortable life at, uh, through material consumption. On that account, you know, unemployment rate in Greece is uh, still above 25%. Youth unemployment is uh, still above 55%. So on that account, uh, this is a complete failure. So yes, I mean, uh, you, you have a so-called primary surplus, uh, which means that your current tax revenue is bigger than your current spending. If you exclude your repayment, your uh, government debt, but that can be called a success only when you think having budget surplus is the most important goal. Yes, I mean, uh, if you think that, uh, maybe it is a success, but uh, when you think about uh, the human misery and uh, poverty and deprivation that Greek uh, people are going through, I mean, uh, how can uh, people even have the uh, audacity to call this success? I just don't understand. Looking at the economic situation overall, you've dismissed the claims that Europe is now in an economic recovery. You've instead argued that we are experiencing another economic bubble and one that is about to burst. Why do you believe this to be the case? Yes, I mean, let's uh, first uh, look at this uh, recovery story. You know, the people talked about the lost decade of 1990s in Japan. During that period, per capita income in Japan grew at the rate of 1% per year. Now, if uh, Europe's going to achieve uh, that kind of uh, growth over a 10-year period following on from the 2008 uh, financial crisis, uh, the European economies will have to grow it like 3-4% every year for the next four years, and it's not going to happen. So uh, even if uh, it is a recovery, yeah, I mean, technically, yes, I mean, uh, you, you have uh, fallen to the bottom and you are climbing up. So yeah, relatively speaking, it's a recovery, but recovery has been very slow and very weak, and you are going to have Europe's lost decade, which is actually worse than Japan's lost decade of the 1990s. Now, having said that, yes, I mean, there is that uh, one segment of the European and indeed uh, global economy that is booming, which is the stock market, and especially the two leading stock markets of the world in the United States and the UK. I mean, uh, there's a huge bubble, you know. People agree that in the run-up to the 2008 financial crisis in 2006 and 2007, you had a huge asset bubble yeah? in the real estate market, also in stock market. Now, the U.S. stock market is 20% bigger than what it was back in 2007, when 
current pocket income in the United States is uh, like 1% higher than what it was in 2007. So uh, we have a bubble that is even bigger than uh, what we had back in 2007 without any fundamental things about the economy changing. The UK is uh, slightly better, but uh, in a similar situation, UK pocket income hasn't even recovered, uh, unlike in the US at the 2007 level. And the UK stock market is basically at the same level as uh, what it was uh, in the autumn of 2007 when, yes, I mean, everyone looking back admit that there was a huge uh, bubble there. So, yes, I mean, that these bubbles are going to burst, uh, you know, I mean, the unfortunate thing is uh, that uh, we cannot predict uh, the timing very well, and I, I cannot tell you exactly when this is going to happen, one year later, two years later, who knows. But when this happens, we'll be in an even bigger mess, because uh, the last time, at least uh, governments could uh, run some debt and kind of counter the downturn in the private sector activities. Uh, this time around, many governments are not uh, even uh, going to be able to do that. So we are uh, in for a big trouble. We are seeing further rounds of job cuts and cuts to salaries, cuts to vital public services as well in countries such as Greece. And we also see the continued insistence of the EU and the International Monetary Fund for privatization programs to push forward. What would the impact of these continued policies be? And can you point to any examples of such austerity policies succeeding in the past in leading an economy back to growth? Yes, I mean, the only thing I can tell in this regard is that uh, this uh, kind of austerity policy has never worked. You know, the Latin American countries, the African countries, they try the exact same recipe issued to them at the time by the IMF and the World Bank. Throughout the 80s and 90s, basically they had 30 years of low growth, uh, stagnation, increasing inequality and deterioration in the quality of public service. In Latin American countries, per capita income in those uh, the countries uh, used to grow at 3.1% between 1960 and 1980 when they had more interventionist uh, policies. In the next uh, 30 years, with all those austerity policies, privatization, free trade, you name it, their growth rate has uh, fallen to one quarter of that, 0.8% per year. In Africa, it was even worse that the African countries were not doing brilliantly in the 60s and 70s, growing at 1.6% uh, per year, which is uh, not too bad, but uh, not brilliant. But uh, in the next uh, 30 years, uh, they basically have uh, stayed in the same place. I mean, during that 30-year uh, period, their average annual growth rate was 0.2%. Uh, that means that uh, after 30 years, their income is... You know, like at uh, less than 15% higher than it was 30 years ago. So this is a huge failure. And actually, uh, when it comes to more historical experiences, people can look at uh, this uh, wonderful book by British political scientist who teaches in America called Mark Bly. And he goes through all these uh, cases uh, of you know, 1920s, US, Germany, Sweden and uh, Finland in the 1980s, Latvia in the more recent period, and uh, looks at them uh, very, very uh, carefully and comes to the conclusion that, yes, uh, that the only possible exception uh, to this rule that austerity policy never works is Ireland in the 1980s, but uh, it was in a very, very special circumstance uh, because uh, it just uh, joined the EU 
and huge amount of cohesion fund uh, flowed into the country, basically countering a lot of these uh, austerity policies because even the government was uh, cutting spending, EU was spending more. So he says that, yes, that, uh, that's uh, probably one you know, possible exception, but in every other case, you know, I mean, for example, countries like Latvia, I mean, uh, Latvia has uh, often been touted as a success story of austerity in the recent period. You know, the country that uh, has uh, managed to survive only by exporting huge number of people, you know. The population has been falling uh, at the rate of uh, more than one percent per year. So even then, I mean, it's uh, the performance has been uh, quite uh, poor. So that I can tell you, I mean, basically, there's no country which has uh, succeeded with uh, this kind of policy ever. We are on the air with economist and University of Cambridge professor Hajun Chang here on the Alagos Radio in the Alagos Interview Series. Hajun, do you believe that the euro as a currency and the common market were structurally flawed from the start? Well, I'm afraid uh, it was because, you know, that the most obvious analogy between the European Currency Union with the European Currency Union is uh, the United States. You know, the U.S. is uh, another continental-sized economy with very diverse conditions. You know, I mean, the parts of California and Massachusetts are the richest, among the richest places in the world. You know, if you go to places like Mississippi, you could be in a third world country. Despite that, uh, the U.S. hasn't experienced a problem like uh, the, the European Union has uh, when some something goes wrong in some part of the economy. And uh, plenty of things have gone bad in different parts of the U.S. economy over the last 200 years, but that uh, it hasn't had the kind of problem that the European Union has with Greece, Italy, and Portugal because there's a very high degree of fiscal integration. So in the EU, if income falls by one euro in one of the countries, for whatever reason, roughly five cents uh, go back to that region through EU-level transfer. In the case of the United States, something like 50% uh, goes back if uh, income falls in one of the 50 states through federal uh, transfer system. So there, there's a very high degree of uh, fiscal integration. And also, the, you cannot really compare the extent of labor mobility in the two economies because, the, you know, okay, in Europe, uh, you also have this uh, freedom of labor movement, but the truth is that because of language barrier and cultural barrier and differences in the structure of the housing market and so on, the actual mobility is very limited. Whereas in America, that a lot of people move, you know, for example, the 1980s uh, when all the heavy industries uh, went into decline in the Midwestern states, a lot of people moved to the Southwest, uh, like Arizona and New Mexico and uh, also to, to California. So the point that I'm trying to make is that uh, if you want currency union, you need at least the U.S. level of uh, integration through labor market policy and uh, fiscal transfer and so on. And unfortunately, the euro was launched when these conditions were not there. So, yes, I'm, I'm afraid that uh, you know it might have worked if uh, they introduced the common currency among the sort of core you know, five, six countries with similar levels of income and low language data barriers and so on. Unfortunately, this uh, project was uh, pushed when the conditions were not ready because of political reasons, and we are living through the consequences of this ill-judged decision to launch the common currency. Would a departure from the Eurozone and a return to a national currency be a viable option for a country like Greece? And how would a country like Greece accomplish this and be able to rebuild its economy under such circumstances? Whether Greece should stay in the Eurozone or not, of course, is 
matter of the relative cost and benefit. I mean, there's no God-given reason why it should or shouldn't. But yes, I mean, my view is that if the European Union is going to maintain the current policy stance, it is better for Greece to exit the common currency and devalue its own currency and reflate the economy. Of course, that, that, that biggest trouble is that in the decade also of currency union, a lot of Greek industries have been destroyed. So that basically, you, you have much weaker productive capacity to rebuild the economy, even after you devalue. So it will be a tough struggle. But, you know, when you look at examples like Argentina, which basically had a unilateral currency union with the US dollar in the 1990s, and when that didn't work out, he linked uh, his uh, currency with uh, the US dollar and defaulted on many of uh, his uh, loans, and then became the fastest uh, growing economy in Argentina, uh, in Latin America between 2003 and 2011. You know, when you look at a case like that, you begin to think uh, maybe the Greece uh, will be better off uh, the outside the Eurozone. And, you know, I mean, my view is that, frankly, un- unless uh, you are really ready to leave the Euro, the rest of Eurozone countries, uh, especially Germany and so on, uh, they are not going to give you many concessions. So I think it's uh, also uh, strategically uh, better if you, you know, think about a future outside the Eurozone in a more serious way. And we've been hearing recently about some economic and even a social turbulence in countries such as Argentina, which you mentioned a moment ago, and also uh, Puerto Rico as well. Is the situation in Greece right now similar in any way to what these countries are now experiencing? Yeah, well, unfortunately, I don't know much about uh, Puerto Rico, but yes, of course, I mean, it's a very analogous example in the sense that it is, uh, you know, part of the U.S., but not part of the U.S., and therefore it uh, gets a very uh, bad treatment uh, from the federal government. So I think that uh, there must be a lot of parallel there, but uh, I know a bit about Argentina. Yes, I mean, Argentina has uh, been in trouble uh, in the last couple of years, but I think uh, this was uh, simply the result of uh, policy misjudgment, because uh, what has happened is uh, basically they failed to devalue the currency in the last uh, few years when the currency, the real value of the currency was falling, and this uh, has created a lot of uh, problems, but uh, in, you know, in the last uh, couple of months, they actually devalued the currency by 20%, and that's uh, exactly the kind of flexibility that you get uh, by having your own currency, and I expect uh, Argentina to uh, recover the, from uh, the recent downturn. Of course, uh, it's a struggle, you know, I mean, the country has been basically the blackballed in the international financial market, and this access to international credit is uh, difficult, and there are a lot of internal problems and so on. But, you know, don't forget that uh, between 2003 and 11, it was the fastest growing Latin American economy. And, you know, even if you include the downturn in the last couple of years, uh, performance, I mean, I haven't uh, done the exact calculation, but uh, its uh, performance uh, would be one of the best in the continent. So compared to what the situation was uh, back in 2001 and two, when it was trying desperately to repay whatever foreign debt they had to repay by selling everything and cutting government spending and sacking everyone and uh, basically destroying the economy. You know, I would uh, say that the situation, despite the problems in the last uh, two, three years, is uh, infinitely better than that. 
Lots of Greek people are migrating or thinking of migrating, particularly the young and the educated. You've written, however, recently that economies such as that of the UK are facing a jobs crisis, and in particular a crisis in terms of the quality of the jobs that are being created. What should these young people know about the state of the economies of countries such as the, the UK and others? Yes, I mean, uh, you know, uh, to exaggerate, uh, you know, the UK has uh, become a very polarized economy. So there, there are a lot of very well-paid, too well-paid investment bankers. There are a lot of very well-paid high-tech researchers and marketing agents and so on. But then there are increasingly fewer stable jobs for skilled workers as uh, there used to be. And the rest of the population are now working in very low-quality, low-paid and very unstable jobs are in you know, supermarkets and call centers and so on. So yes, I mean, unfortunately, that uh, when Greek young people from Greece that uh, moved to Britain, unless uh, they are extremely highly qualified and have a PhD or something like that, that uh, they'll usually end up in very low-paid, unstable jobs like uh, waitressing or cleaning and so on. I mean, if the situation continues in the way it has uh, in Greece, uh, even those jobs uh, might be better than staying in Greece because if you're a young person, the chance of you being unemployed is uh, higher than 50%. So, yes, I mean, unfortunately, uh, even with uh, such uh, poor conditions in the UK and other countries, the young people from Greece uh, might still want to move, but yes. That uh, they have to realize that uh, the situation in these countries, I mean, especially in Britain, is uh, not very good. And uh, this has uh, made the local population here very hostile to people from other EU countries uh, coming and working in uh, Britain. So, I mean, they have to bear that in mind. You've argued that neoliberal economic policies do not work. What alternative economic system do you propose? And do you believe, for instance, that we should move toward a post-capitalist economic system? Well, I mean, I don't think that we are ready for post-capitalism. No one has provided a convincing vision of what a post-capitalist economy could be, especially after the fall of uh, the Soviet model. But uh, the point I uh, want to emphasize is that, uh, you know, neoliberal capitalism is not the only form of capitalism. So actually, if you look around, I mean, uh, capitalism has enormous varieties. So the American capitalism is very different from the Japanese one, which is very different from the Swedish one, which is uh, very different from the Italian one, which is quite different from the French one and so on. So there is a huge variety of uh, capitalism, and uh, don't forget, I mean, even the U.S. and Britain, the two kind of centers of neoliberalism, even they were not neoliberal until the 1970s, you know, but in the 1950s, under you know, the Republican president Eisenhower, the top income tax rate in the United States was uh, 92%. You know? So, I mean, even in those uh, countries like uh, the U.S. and the U.K., this uh, neoliberal capitalism is uh, something quite new. And yeah, I, I think that we have a lot of possibilities of modifying capitalism. We, we take it for granted, but uh, if you, you know, try to tell about say, today's uh, Sweden or Finland to a 19th century capitalist or 19th century free market economist, they would call the country socialist, you know, government taking more than 50% of uh, output in taxes and spending something like 30% of GDP 
for social welfare and a lot of regulations on what business can and cannot do. And in countries like Finland, quite a lot of uh, state-owned enterprises. So, you know, I mean, that depending on who you are, you may actually call those countries uh, socialists. So if, if you that, uh, consider that, yeah, maybe we have already some element of a post-capitalist system, but even accepting that, that these countries are fundamental capitalists, uh, which I believe they are, there are many different ways of uh, running capitalism and this uh, neoliberal capitalism that has uh, dominated the world in the last uh, three decades, it is uh, one of the worst forms. In closing, where can our listeners find out more about you and your books and your writing? My personal website, which is very regularly updated, and uh, it's net. I mean, the, the, my name in one word, H-A-J-O-O-N-C-H-A-N-G dot net and they'll be all about uh, my academic and uh, more popular writing there. Hajun, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us today and for sharing all of your insights here in the Dialogos Radio and the Dialogos interview series. Thank you. It was my absolute pleasure.